Uh, you're recording again? Mm-hmm. Okay, I see Isaac, and Isaac's right. waves are a little bit closer to my size now. You go, Sean. Um, am I saying things that are of the proper appropriate size? <laughs> yes, your amplitude is, is satisfactory. Uh, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> Welcome to the Black Box Poetry Podcast. I'm Anastasia Nicolas. I am a PhD student in poetry and poetics of the late 20th century at the University of Rochester in up in uh, New York, near the Canadian border. I'm joined here today by my two poetry comrades at arms. Say hi, guys. Hi, I'm uh, Sean Hughes. I'm a PhD student at Rutgers University. I primarily spend my time with 19th century stuff. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and translator based in Bennington, Vermont. And together we are the team that makes up the Black Box Poetry Podcast. We're really thrilled to have you joining us here this evening for our, uh, I guess it could be morning, but I really hope you're listening to this in the evening. It seems unpleasant to do in the morning. We're really pleased to have you here for our inaugural episode of the podcast. We're going to start off by kind of giving you a sense of who we are, how we know each other, and what we do. You'll learn a little bit more about our dynamics as a trio as the uh, podcast progresses. But for now, I'm going to kind of turn this over to our resident Father Time slash Tiresias figure and let Sean fill in the blanks for you about how this whole shindig works. So I really like historical explanations. So we met about 10 years ago, which is upsetting. And there was a group at Haverford College where we all went the Poetry Reading Group, or PRG, and every Thursday we'd get together with um, wine and snacks, and people would bring poems they like, and they would read them, and we'd talk about them, and then it would get more and more inefficient and ridiculous as the evening went on, and eventually we would be, like, doing recitations of Triscuit Boxes with their uh, white winter wheat, the cashmere of wheats. So when I look back on this, It was really all about the obsessive close reading and the ridiculous digressions. Pretty shortly after graduating from college, someone in our midst started up like um, a Facebook messenger chain, which again, a lot of of feeling old right now, about um, poetry and form. And we kept talking about it. We started getting together more often. And this is in some ways an extension of that and also a weird sort of like public social manifestation of our bizarre cult-like dynamic. Keep in mind that the wine we used in our rituals was the cheapest available at the Pennsylvania State Store. (laughs) Yeah. Real. And also, very quickly, people fell into rules. Like, you know, I didn't know that there was a name for what I was until an hour ago when Asia told me that I was Father Time. I'm comfortable with that. I think Tiresias um, is also to... really important that like being able to like see into what the hell is happening while the rest of us are like <laughs> pretty fucking blind. That's like, that's a big part of how this dynamic worked. I am, I am doing really well in this exchange because Asia's role was divine Eros and Isaac's role was Thanatos or <laughs> other times Asia's role was Apollo bringer of clarity and Isaac's role was Dionysus destroyer. And... <laughs> The fact that I get to, like, have no major responsibilities in this Greek sort of system is is really pretty comforting, you know? I don't have to be ripped apart. I also don't have to, like, be the bringer of pestilence. So 
I think I'm um, I'm getting the I'm I'm getting the best here. I had to wear a leather jacket and a Russian sailor shirt to these meetings to <laughs> my caricature sufficiently. I was committed to my role. Yeah. <laughs> you used to terrify so many of the freshmen. They would, they would show up. And they would come to Build's me after character. and ask if Isaac was actually a student at school. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, I'm I showing up in my Birkenstocks and backpack with like the snacks inside. So they would ask me afterwards if Isaac was actually a student or if he was a plant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So kind of gives you an overview of the dynamic. You'll see it play out a little bit more. But uh, during these meetings, we all would bring poems and phones weren't quite as good then as they are now. So usually we would do these and Haverford College was super generous and let us all print things for free on real paper. So we would bring little printouts of poems on little squares. You'd cut them at you because you'd still want it to save the trees. So you'd cut your poem out of a sheet of paper and we'd hand them around so that you had a little like stack of poems by the time you left. But the big thing that we noticed while we were reading these poems, especially once we left college, was that we had all kind of learned to approach poetry in a very similar way, um, which I don't think we noticed at the time as much when we were in the middle of this kind of PRG poetry love fest every Thursday night at 9 p.m. But as time went on, at least I know I really experienced, and I think we all kind of have acknowledged that we all learned how to read poems in a particular way, and we all have kind of the, we, the three of us, the, our little poetry reading group, has a kind of bizarre relationship to poetry that we haven't quite seen manifested elsewhere. Yeah, it was kind of a house style. And like I said earlier that it was really centered around close reading. But one of the things that I've realized looking back on it is that there's really no one kind of close reading. So I remember, you know, from a really early on, you two were always really good at thinking about the words and poems as being like processes rather than stable points. And so thinking about a word is something that's changing over time and the poem is, is sort of grabbing a hold of and playing around with was a, a really big part of it. But so was sort of like pausing over the line breaks or looking at the way that a concept would kind of start meaning one thing at the beginning of a poem and then slowly slip around into being something else by the end of it. So it was informed by a lot of different stuff, but also it, it is kind of this weird sort of group style that wound up emerging. I think one of the most interesting things about it is that we are very tied to process. We're tied to the way that a poem is a process from beginning to end, the way that a poem kind of unfolds as um, a thing over time and as a, an action and a series of actions that are occurring. So one of the things I think we're going we're to run into, and I think we're running into a little bit now, is it's really hard to pin down what a poem's doing. It's also really hard to pin down and summarize how we really approach these poems. So what we're kind of hoping is that you'll give us a little bit of a leap of faith and you'll follow us down into the rabbit hole and maybe watch us, listen to us, kind of come, come along for the ride, see what we do when we uh, masticate a poem for you. We've got three nice ones lined up tonight, so I think this is going to be a real adventure, as it were. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to start with the poem by Emily Dickinson. It's number 315. The first line is, he fumbles at your soul. He fumbles at your soul as players at the keys before they drop full music on. He stuns you by degrees, prepares your brittle nature for the ethereal blow by fainter hammers, further heard than nearer. Then so slow your breath has time to straighten, your brain to bubble cool. Deals one imperial thunderbolt 
that scalps your naked soul. When winds take forests in their paws, the universe is still. One of the things that I really love about Emily Dickinson's poetry is there's this amazing density of figurative language, but it's also um, kind of wonderfully difficult to pin down the boundaries between metaphor and reality. It's in a weird way really difficult to say where you're standing when an Emily Dickinson poem is happening. And so because of that, it often doesn't feel overwhelmingly dense in the way that some other poets who use a, a lot of metaphor can wind up feeling. At the same time, it's like incredibly sort of evasive. This one is, I think, maybe a little bit more manageable, but it's still that, that last couplet is incredibly hard to pin down. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not even going to touch the couplet yet. We need, to, we need to fight a little bit harder to earn that one. But um, I know the thing that I always really latch onto for an, in an Emily Dickinson poem, which I think is what you're getting at, Sean, with uh, the limits of the metaphor in these poems, is the weird pairings of words. She's so good at making you kind of latch on to the way two words, you don't normally hear two words next to each other. So brittle nature or something like a fumbling soul. So although they're right, not, not right next to each other, right in that first line, he fumbles at your soul. You can almost hear like fumbling for your keys or fumbling for the door or fumbling for these like very physical objects that then gets paired with this like very abstract, like out of left field thing, like a soul, like I don't even know what to do with that. So suddenly a soul becomes just as accessible as your keys or just as banal as your keys, but it also of course isn't because it's still a soul. So that's one of my favorite things about Dickinson is the way that that strangeness feels so normal. It's so normalized, so it doesn't feel as crazy. And then when you kind of break it for a second and you pause a second, brittle nature all of a sudden, or something like that becomes crazy. It becomes really bizarre. Yeah, it's almost like on a line-by-line -line basis, it's like pointing you to all of the sensual qualities of things. And a lot of times it feels like the connection is happening not in terms of the, like, objects that are in front of you but in terms of the associations of those objects mm -hmm. so you were talking about how in the opening when it says he fumbles at your soul as players at the keys there's something i don't know like really strange about that metaphor because on the one hand it's crystal clear when someone is sitting down at, the, at a piano and they're just starting to play they haven't warmed up yet and they aren't playing very well but then it still has like your soul in it <laughs> so even though the metaphor feels like it's not inherently hard to parse because the thing at the middle of it is so weird. It makes all of the kind of like awkwardness and even kind of like groping weirdness of the word fumbles feel that much more powerful and strange. Like having someone fumble at your soul feels violating, even though I don't even know what that would look like. Well, it gets even weirder. Emily Dickinson is so good because what, what Chandra said is, is weird enough, right? But then, then you have to take it one step further because it's it's plural as players at the keys. So it's not even one yeah. person at a piano. It's either like multiple people at a piano, so then it's even more crowded and violated, or it's like multiple people at multiple pianos. Which, what? How often does that happen? Everything it just becomes stranger and stranger the deeper into the lines you go. Yeah, it's like she's really good at moving up and down levels of abstraction. So like the he of this feels like it's a very particularized he. And then it's not even like a particular person fumbling around at, like a piano. It's like, you know, the way that anyone who plays the piano just in general is kind of like not very good at first and sort of awkwardly groping. 
it's really bizarre how it sort of keeps moving from things that are incredibly concrete and, you know, really um, easy to place to things that are just super evasive. On the very disquieting element of this first metaphor, in addition to the sense of violation, is the suddenness with which she reveals that your soul has keys. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. That's such a dramatically abrupt gesture of concretizing a overwhelmingly abstract concept like the soul. Especially because the implications of that are so unclear. Like there's a friend of ours who wrote a poem called The Heart is an Organ, and it was playing on this tension between thinking of the heart as being like a bodily organ or being like an organ that's played on. And there's something sort of similar happening here where in a weird way, the fact that your soul has keys is kind of nice and charming, but also kind of like really weird and uncomfortable because it it almost makes it feel like it's something that can be messed around with in a way that feels, I don't know, wrong. But then at another level, the whole motion of this poem is to try and make this, you know, painfully abstract thing feel like it has some kind of real sensual dimensions, which is nice, you know? Sensual dimensions, one of my favorite things to have. So I was going to go back a second and kind of ask, you brought up the the fact, Sean, that there's like a he, and the he fumbles at your soul is introduced, and then we kind of end up in this like crazy place with the players that, um, and we're not even really sure. The he feels very particular, but is also kind of, feels kind of like general and non-specific at the same time. And I was just curious how the Emily Dickinson has a ton of poems, but how does the, how do you think the he kind of works in this one? Are we supposed to try to locate him? Are we not? One of the metaphors that I often use when trying to discuss Emily Dickinson is uh, there are concepts in her poems that, one can't quite gloss or interpret on their own, but which do interesting things when they interact with other nodes like themselves in the poem. So you have these sort of inviolable steel boxes in the poem that can still be stacked into some kind of architecture, even if we can't get inside them and see how they work. Yeah, one of my favorite stories about someone trying to teach Emily Dickinson. She had one student in her class who was always on the ball, always sort of saw out of the heart of things. And on the day when she was teaching Emily Dickinson, five minutes into the conversation, the student raised her hand and said, I'm confused because this poem could either be about God or about sex. (laughs) And the teacher was like, hold that thought. We're going to get there later. And this feels like that kind of classic thing. And I think Isaac is right to sort of think about the ways in which Dickinson really creates her own sort of like private set of reference points. So at one level, this feels like it could be God. God thought about in an incredibly sort of like heretical, weird way. And then it could also be thought of as being some sort of strange, like erotic other. But it is really interesting that it prevents you from figuring out which it is. I think that the reason that ambiguity can be productive and generative rather than distracting is because the position that God or an erotic other would occupy in relation to the speaker are analogous positions. 
that yeah. God functions as an other, as a distant reference point that enables you to think about something transcendent. And when you're pursuing an intimate relationship, there's a similar process that happens. So it's the relationship between things, between concepts that are deployed rather than the content or nature of those concepts. It's where they are in relation to each other. I like what you're talking about with relationality um, and how the ambiguity about he isn't distracting in this poem because I know that often one of the, the like pitfalls that happens in poems is you're trying to decode or like figure out like, oh, who is the he? And that feels like a very important project. And that with Emily Dickinson, that's something you ask, but that's something you also just as quickly leave aside because it's all about how those moments of ambiguity function in relationship to the other moments of ambiguity. And since there's so many of these moments where the ambiguity feels so thick or so available, the fact that he could be a god or a lover or whatever is really insignificant in relationship to the way like soul operates in this poem or the way that ethereal blow operates like i i don't really know what that means because there is no real context for that because when we get to fainter hammers that seems to be that could be a blow from an actual hammer but we we have the availability of the piano like five lines six lines earlier so it could be the hammers within the piano so already even something that feels as concrete as a hammer becomes just as kind of slippery and ambiguous because we don't know what the reference point is which is to say, I really appreciate that with Dickinson, she she asks, demands you to ask these questions about something like he, but also kind of tells you to leave that alone, to just like let it go and be okay with that ambiguity. I'd like to go back to a metaphor you used very early in your argument for this point. Uh, you described how this poem has to teach the reader to resist the temptation to try and decode it. I think the idea of decoding is very central to how one has to approach Emily Dickinson, or rather to how one has to not approach Emily Dickinson. And I think the opposite approach to decoding might be called reverse engineering, when you're trying to take apart a machine to understand how its components work so you can build another machine like it. What you should do when you encounter something like the ambiguous he in this poem which could be God or could be an ironic other, is not try to decode it, but rather to try and reverse engineer it. Say, this is a cog or a spring in this machine. If I look at what it's doing, I can understand what it is. I can't look at the cog on the table. I have to look at the cog in the workings of the machinery. Uh, you mean it's like a black box? Yeah. No, there Very it is. much like a black <laughs> box, in fact. Just, just saying, so, like... just commenting. Here you go, Sean. Take that. <laughs> but I... I feel like one of the one of the really big reasons that that's the case is because whether you think about it as being God or an erotic figure, you have like the same problem either way, which is this is not an existing way of describing either of those things at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even if it, you heard it was one or the other, you'd be like, "Oh, okay, wait, that hmm, that's." You so, mean you don't you don't describe your erotic others as uh, players at the keys before they drop their full music on? You actually yeah. shouldn't even call them erotic others. I've discovered I, I they don't say, like that. I, I regret having. I regret that like five minutes ago when I was like grasping around for a way to put it, I said like erotic other because <laughs> that is so chillingly abstract. Um, it's almost like I was deliberately making fun of myself, but I, I wasn't. I, I that was all I could do. 
Well, I think it, it's a productive, uh, productive groping, though, because Lacanian psychologists talk about no. the idea of the big brother. <laughs> no. Groping to Lacan. Okay. <laughs> the big other can be God or the beloved as long as it's big enough. And in your personal uh, cosmos, the beloved always is. Boo. <laughs> it scalps na- your naked soul. <sighs> so I want to get back to some moments that I just think are cool. Um, when it says, then so slow your breath has time to straighten your brain to bubble cool. Bubble cool just feels good to say. Wherever you are, however you're jogging, take a moment to say bubble cool because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, uh, you're gonna like the way it feels. At the same time, there's that weird thing where, like, your breath is time to straighten, kind of jumps over your brain to bubble cool. Like, there's something weird happening there where, like, breath straightening, I assume, is something about, like, your breath going from being uneven to being sort of regular. And that feels weirdly connected, this image of, like, something bubbling cool, where, like, all of the excess air inside of it is, is like, escaping as it settles in. But the images there are totally different. Like straighten is a weird way to say that. And one of the things that's so great about saying it that way is it feels completely unrelated to bubbles, but somehow manages to connect in spite of that. Yeah. Your breath has time to straighten is one of those lines that like, God, I wish I could write that line. Um, yeah. But that's one of, that's totally one of those lines for me because of exactly what you're saying that like, we, we all know, we all have, we all know what that means that like going from that ragged breath to something uh, more regular, but it's it that's not how you say that that's not how you express that idea so it's just like how did we all arrive there but what i wanted to go back to was the point you were making sean that uh, your breath has time to straighten your brain to bubble cool you just like kind of ignore the your brain part there's something about the way those sounds just like melt away they're so present um we know those words are there but the sounds just don't matter you do just want to jump from straighten to bubble cool that is a really amazing feat that Dickinson pulls off here that you actually get the presence of the like language, the presence of that particular vocabulary. But for some reason, the sounds don't register. I I don't know how that happens, um, but it's really stunning. And you can do that for the whole poem. I mean, like there's a really good use of assonance here. So like you have vowel sounds that will sort of like jump ahead, you know, four syllables or five syllables or something. And it never feels obtrusive. It mm-hmm. just feels like this weird thing that's happening in the background. I also love the the claim of the like second half of the first stanza um, is so, so bizarre. She says, then so slow, your breath has time to straighten, your brain to bubble cool, deals one imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul. The idea that simultaneously there's something that's happening slow enough that your breath can straighten out and your brain can bubble cool, but its effect is like a thunderbolt scalping your naked soul. It's, it's so, it's so weird. And it's not just the fact that like the thunderbolt and the breath straightening and the, the, the brain bubbling cool feel like they don't really fit, but like the level of figurative language is just so, so tightly packed. So like, deals one imperial thunderbolt that scalps your naked soul so far your soul has keys it's a piano it's not an organ it's a piano because there are hammers and on top of that it also is naked and has a scalp that can be removed right (laughs) it's a a lot of pressure to put on your soul um (laughs) 
but it makes me appreciate my soul more than I have all week. <laughs> Dickinson is like by far the most social poet to me because Dickinson is a poet that, yeah, I'll like read her by myself. Like, you know, I read poems with tea and it's really pleasant and I'll read Dickinson alone, but there's something about Dickinson. I, I don't know what was happening in her brain, but I need like seven other brains at my disposal it's to so really true. open up a Dickinson poem to do anything yeah. real with it. No, it's completely true. And it's the kind of thing where, like, I read this, you know, before we started it up and had a few things to say about it. But, like, I feel like I'm seeing things that I couldn't possibly have seen just by talking about it with other people. And I don't know why it works that way. I think there's something about how it's it uses its resources in a really low-key way. So, like, there are little jumps that it makes between lines that are dependent on things like you know sound or like weird stray associations or it'll have a like a phrase like your brain has time like sorry your breath has time to straighten which we know instantly what that means but it's not it's not a thing that anyone has ever said and you almost need another human around to make you realize like oh right if i said that i wouldn't be confident that you would know what i meant but when i read it i was immediately like yes breath it straightens Right. This, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about words as processes rather than as aesthetic chips that one can throw around. And we've talked a bit about poems as machinery that one has to run. A lot of the point that you've just made rests on the fact that both of those things are processes that have to happen in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that enables her to produce effects like your breath has time to straighten, your brain to bubble cool, sneaking up on you in the way that it does. Yeah. And bringing that back to a point that Anastasia was making earlier, that's viable here because you're engaging with the words themselves rather than the concepts behind them. You're not able to draw a sharp division there. Or, in fact, often it's not even really a matter of drawing a sharp division. We uh, translate the word to the abstract concept so readily that we can miss the fact that that process is happening. But by using assonance in such a striking way, Dickinson is forcing us to engage with the with the words of the poem rather than with the concepts of the poem. Yeah. With that, I think we should jump to the couplet real quick because this is one of those funny couplets where all of the words feel like they don't, I feel like we're not prepared for any of the words that show up in the couplet and (laughs) we're supposed to somehow still believe it's attached to the rest of the poem. I mean, maybe the, (laughs) (laughs) so it uh no, I mean it's it's really weird because I think what's going on in the rest of the poem is there's this really ambiguous I was gonna say an ambiguous tension, but that's kind of redundant. There's a tension <laughs> between like on the one hand, there's this thing happening which is inevitable. Like he, whoever he is, is going to play some melody on your soul and it's like a fait accompli. You can't really sort of like put it off. But it also feels like this thing that is actually absurdly slow and not only is is like he playing that melody really slow but before he even does that there's this like long stretch of like futzing around and not actually doing that thing and 
so we were saying a moment ago that it seems like it's on the one hand really slow, but then it's also like a thunderbolt. And what the last image for me is doing is pushing that to a breaking point. There's a term catacresis, which basically means like a forced metaphor, like a metaphor that doesn't really work. You can't really parse it out, but like it somehow is just sort of imposed upon you by the poet and you can sort of make it happen. So when it says when winds take forests in their paws, the universe is still that at some level is just impossible to make work because winds seizing upon a forest, if I'm going to try and imagine that or visualize it, it's a thoroughly dynamic process. It's like air moving through something. And so we're being asked to imagine that as like this incredibly definitive and intentional act where it's not just air passing through. It's like something is being seized upon. And that's necessary to get us to this idea that the universe is still, that we've reached some kind of transcendence, whether it's good or bad is like super unclear. But in order to do that and still have that sense of something creeping up on you, something happening too, too slowly, she uses this metaphor that doesn't make sense in a wonderful way. Like it, it deliberately doesn't work. And the way that it doesn't work is like so tied into the rest of the poem. What I find so troubling and bewildering about this stanza in a way that's closely related to the point you're making is that the fact that it ends with a dash. Yeah. The assertion that the universe is still ends with a dash that isn't followed by any language that has semantic content. Mm-hmm. And that's utterly different from how dashes have worked throughout the rest of the poem. The rest of the poem uses dashes in a very aural, very sonic way. By fainter hammers, dash, further heard. That's creating the three-dimensional experience of hearing sound by placing those dashes as intervals. Then nearer, dash, then so slow. Your breath has time to straighten, dash. But the reason those dashes work is that they delineate units of time within the stream of time in which this process is happening. This poem is delineating a unit of time after the process has already been run. And that's happening immediately after its claim that the universe is still. It claims that the universe is still and then adds a gesture that requires something to follow when nothing follows. So does that subvert the idea that the universe is still, or is that the ultimate enactment of its stillness? Like another way of putting that is when it says, when winds take forests in in their paws, the universe is still. Part of you wants there to be another word there where it's going to say like the universe is still, I don't know, peaceful or alive or whatever. And have still set up another word, but the way it actually falls out, it's just like still as in not moving. But because there's a dash, you feel like there's something else that's being held off from you. Like you're not getting the payoff or the conclusion. And the really cool thing about doing that is the very fact that you want there to be some kind of concluding gesture is creating stillness in the reader. It's kind of like forcing you to want something that is being withheld from you which she's really good at. Like she has another poem. I heard a funeral in my, in my brain that ends like, and finished knowing then. And it feels like it means both that was the moment when I finished knowing, but also I finished knowing the whole idea of then 
the idea that there's something else coming along. She's really good at like pushing experience to a limit point where you're not really sure whether it's the end of the world or you're just you're just sitting around waiting. I think the way that you just ended that guy's gestures at this 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 feeling that there's both an end and an expectation for more that encourages this kind of movement while also asking you to kind of stay at the end of the poem it feels like it's kind of gesturing at the way this poem constantly is demanding that you reinscribe yourself in it whether it's by the assonance or the consonants or whether it's by going back to try to locate who the he is or going back to locate are the hammers part of this piano keys, but there is no piano even mentioned. There's kind of this constant movement of back through the poem. But even more interestingly, I think it's telling that none of us have tried, have even attempted to hazard saying, like, what is this poem about? Because that is automatically a trap. So the only thing that you can do instead is talk about what <laughs> this poem makes you do. <laughs> yeah. It's totally true that, like, the the thought of trying to say, what is this poem about, you feel like, yeah, you know, to quote the interwebs, it's a trap. Yeah, like, um. you can't do it. <laughs> so I'm going to actually, since we were just talking about a poem that demands that you talk about how it moves and we can't talk about what it's about, I'm going to throw my poem in the ring that I brought tonight because it's a poem that has a kind of, like, it kind of offers itself as having something that it's about and then kind of gives a bait and switch because that's kind of the least interesting thing about the poem. So for those of you following along, if you've been trying to avoid bringing up the poem itself so that you're actually looking along with us, this is B-I-G-H-T, not like I'm going to bite you because you suck. This is more like recess of a coast, like a bay, right? So it's a body of water, not like A word that, to be clear, none of us knew until reading this poem right <laughs> right that's not common parlance guys <laughs> no. at low tide like this how sheer the water is white crumbling ribs of marl protrude and glare and the boats are dry the pilings dry as matches absorbing rather than being absorbed the water in the bite doesn't wet anything the color of the gas flame turned as low as possible. One can smell it turning to gas. If one were Baudelaire, one could probably hear it turning to marimba music. The little ochre dredge at work off the end of the dock already plays the dry, perfectly offbeat claves. The birds are outsize. Pelicans crash into this peculiar gas unnecessarily hard it seems to me, like pickaxes, rarely coming up with anything to show for it and going off with humorous elbowings. Black and white man-of-war birds soar on impalpable drafts and open their tails like scissors on the curves or tense them like wishbones till they tremble. The frowsy sponge boats keep coming in with the obliging air of retrievers bristling with jackstraw gaffs and hooks, and decorated with baubles of sponges. There is a fence of chicken wire along the dock, where, glinting like little plowshares, the blue-gray shark tails are hung up to dry for the Chinese restaurant trade. Some of the little white boats are still piled up against each other, 
or lie on their sides, stove in, and not yet salvaged, if they ever will be, from the last bad storm, like torn open unanswered letters, the bite is littered with old correspondences. Click, click goes the dredge, and brings up a dripping jawful of marl. All the untidy activity continues, awful but cheerful. So one of the moments in that that I just think is awesome is some of the little white boats are still piled up against each other or lie on their sides, stove in, and not yet salvaged, if they ever will be, from the last bad storm, like torn open unanswered letters. The bite is littered with old correspondences. So not only is that a really wonderful simile, that the boats are like unanswered letters, then she kind of tops it by saying the bite is littered with old correspondences. And it occurs to me that like this poem at one level is just describing a location, but in the process, it keeps coming up with all of these similes that are totally in excess of what they're supposed to be doing. And it's actually a poem that's kind of full of similes, moments where it's making a correspondence between two things. And because those correspondences feel excessive, you really have the feeling of this kind of like, pile up of detritus. There's just like too many associations. It reminds you of too many things. Well, it's also, I mean, and in that moment, the correspondences come right after the letters. So she also earns this pun. That pun should hurt so bad, but it's also this like, like that should make you want to like, that's like almost on the border of like a dad pun, like a, oh no, but oh yes, like that is a pun. That is what puns should be doing all of the time, kind of acting as this sort of cipher for the whole poem, but also functioning on this like very local level of like hyper, hyper specific pun on that in that line in that moment. Yeah, I'd like to refer back to part of Sean's point to take us to the hyper local level, this idea of her similes and comparisons being one of the most interesting aspects of the poem. Very early on, she pulls that trick in a way that I find very impressive. White crumbling ribs of marrow protrude and glare, and the boats are dry, the pilings dry as matches. This comparison is working in a really interesting way, I think, because it works in the opposite direction from the direction in which most similes work. In the previous poem, we talked about Emily Dickinson asserting that your soul has keys And the revelatory element of that metaphor is that it brings in an external element and ascribes it to your soul. That isn't what's happening here. What's happening here is a stripping away of characteristics rather than a recruitment of characteristics from outside. The pilings dry as matches. The only reason that the pilings are like matches is their shape and the fact that they're dry. We're not bringing in something about these pilings by drawing in traits of matches. We're stripping away elements of pilings to zoom in on what the poet is interested in by placing matches in an interesting position in relation to them. Yeah, that's totally true, because like matches are not necessarily dry, and it's like the structure of the simile is sort of like hot wiring that comparison where like matches don't have to be dry, but the structure of the poem so insists 
on dryness being the the thing that makes it all work that you're like oh so they're like dry matches and in a weird way that's i mean like this is this is maybe getting a little bit too too uh stretchy but like you know a few lines later you have the gas flame there's something about moving from brittleness and dryness to the kind of like um flammability yeah well uh, i like what you were saying isaac about the difference between a metaphor that operates by stripping away essential characteristics that you have to like forget about to make the metaphor work versus adding characteristics to make a metaphor work so not only do the so in this one with the pilings dry as matches i've never i've never thought that much about this that line before in this poem but the pilings in this case like the boats are dry and the pilings are dry. Those are things that are not normally dry in this like situation. Boats are normally wet and the pilings would be those like posts that support like a dock or something, which if they're supporting a dock, they're supporting it so that it's above water. Like the pilings are wet. They have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this like funny moment where like in order to make this make sense, you have to kind of violate the like usual situation, which is exactly what you're saying. But you get that even more a couple lines later in that really that moment where she like really inserts herself and so inserts the voice of the poet where she says the birds are outsized. What the hell is that sentence? And then pelicans crash into this peculiar gas, unnecessarily hard, it seems to me, like pickaxes. So like there's a lot going on there that's insane, but the point that I'm making here is that the pelicans crash like pickaxes. There's nothing about it. Like, pickaxes don't fly. To make this make sense, the only thing we're focusing on is the pointy pickaxe and the point of a pelican's beak. And pelicans don't have pointy beaks. So there's, like, so much that you have to, like, forget about a pelican and a pickaxe for this thing to make sense. And basically all it comes down to is two things moving at another object with force is really all this comes down to. But you have to go through this like funny machination to arrive at that point. You have to recognize how unlike they are to get to the reason that they're similar. It's like a lot yeah. of action happening in the background before you actually get the payoff. You have to do a lot of mental gymnastics. One could argue that this is sort of a maximal example of a process that you have to go through every time you understand a metaphor. Because any metaphor or simile or any other sort of aesthetically productive comparison assumes that you're only going to be comparing a subset of the aspects of the two halves of the metaphor. When I say, my love is like a rose, I expect my reader to understand that my love is fragile and beautiful. I don't expect them to think that it absorbs sunlight and extracts moisture from the soil and needs to be pollinated. What is happening here is the maximum instance of that where it's not just a subset it is a savagely narrowed and curtailed kinship between two concepts and its narrowness is being performed by shoving it in the reader's face how much of the metaphor doesn't work i feel like that comment about metaphor is super true like there's a philosopher named elizabeth camp who has some interesting thoughts on metaphor where she talks about it as like seeing as in a certain way. And the example that she gives that sort of blows my mind is when Dunn says, no man is an island, that is literally true, but it's still a metaphor. So like normally we we think about metaphor in opposition to things that are literally true. But if you say no man is an island, the fascinating thing is that we we don't leave it at that because there are, there are many things that we're not like we're also not continents and we're also not trees and we're also not not archipelagos but like there's something about the setup of metaphor where you're like 
I have to hone in on like, in what sense is it even worth saying, you know, how do I have to look at islands and how do I have to look at humans for it to be worth pointing out this thing that is just factually true Mm -hmm. about islands and humans. That's a great thing to be bringing up, Sean, because I think she's actually kind of pointing that out as like a meta structure in her commentary here when she says, you know, pelicans crash into this peculiar gas unnecessarily hard to be judging the hardness with which a pelican attacks something (laughs) to me, making that judgment in the context of a metaphor that isn't like that works, but like also requires that you kind of ignore so much is drawing attention to the fact that of course, pelicans aren't pickaxes of course this doesn't make any sense. Of course this is unnecessarily hard, but at the same time making you so aware that this is something that you might judge or that you could judge. It's a fascinating game that she's playing right there. And she elaborates on that game in the following line. Pelicans crash into this peculiar gas unnecessarily hard. It seems to me like pickaxes, line break, rarely coming up with anything to show for it. So the pursuit of whatever one is mining for with a pickaxe and the pelicans' hope of catching something they can eat at the end of their dive are a level of kinship that was available that she didn't deploy when we first met this metaphor. Mm -hmm. If she had wanted to make this a readily acceptable, readily digestible metaphor, she could have started from that striving in pursuit of a goal and either getting it or not getting it but she didn't because she wanted to foreground the precariousness of it. It also really amplifies the disconnect between the viewer and the situation. It seems like her attitude is, oh, they're doing this unnecessarily hard because they're probably not going to get anything. But if you are mining with a pickaxe or you are a pelican, you have to do it hard every time because that's just, that's the only way it's going to work. And like, that's a note that is really subtle here. The sense that like the thing that works about this analogy is something that suggests why the speaker's attitude that it's it's they're, they're being unnecessarily hard is is like a little bit off. I think emerges gradually as you go further in the poem. The last two lines are really spectacular, and she says, "All the untidy activity continues, awful but cheerful." That part of what's so weird about this poem is it is charming and kind of like splendid. It's fun to look at. But the poet or the speaker is clearly a little bit put off and grossed out by everything that she's describing. So like the whole way through, there's this tension between this attitude that says, this is a little bit too hard if you ask me. Like, you know, can't you use your pickaxe a little bit more casually? Can't the pelicans dive in a more subtle, accommodating (laughs) manner? And then also this kind of weird sense of like, well, yeah, that's there it is. You know, this is, you know, a bunch of crap on a beach that is interacting in really complicated interesting ways and the speaker is recognizing that almost in spite of herself throughout the whole poem sidebar for all y'all who might go like be obsessed with elizabeth bishop the closing line is the one on her tombstone Mm. all the untidy activity continues awful but cheerful oh my god she's such a bitch she put that on her tombstone yeah right what a fucking badass bitch oh my that is, god that is a boss move how, how dare she yeah. <laughs> you, ah, oh, oh god just take me right now the audacity of that is just is just <laughs> overpowering i love it uh what a jaw full of marl <laughs> 
but I'm one of the things I think is interesting about this poem, especially in relation to the other poem, is this poem, both poems made us really think about metaphors. And I think that's a really important thing to the way we have, I don't know, maybe, what do you guys think about this? I kind of feel like one of the big things that we have a tendency to hone in on is the way, the ways that metaphors are engines to a lot of poems. There's lots of different engines for poems. But I think we have a tendency to be drawn to we, – we have a tendency to really, like, revel in poems that really stretch the limits and the bounds of how metaphors can operate and how something can seem like something else. Is that – I don't know. That's one of the big things I think I learned from you guys over the last decade. What do you guys think? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like the old um... – MTV show Pimp My Ride, where it's like, I put tropes inside your trope so you can trope while you trope, you know? It's like that internet meme. Yeah, it's exactly like that. <laughs> that was catacresis, is what I just did there. <laughs> I think that was a car uh, accident. <laughs> Have we... I feel good about where we're at. Yeah, I think yeah. we've bitten this to death. We've, you know, had our last bite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't let me have that. Don't let me have it, guys. Don't do it. Okay, so for our last poem, we're going to bring in some John Ashbery. This poem is called, Yes, Senior Fluffy. And the clouds fretted and flew, as though there was a reason for their acting distraught. There may have been, of course, but at this distance, better to act dumb and accept the inevitable as a long-anticipated surprise, then if what lands on your plate stares angrily at you and the other guests, can't wait to hear your reaction, why, it's checkout time at the gazebo, and no one will forget you too heartily. As the next-to-last spectator always glimpsed on the premises, feigning the concern for the victim that marks you as the killer, for sure, as for being in touch with you guys, another time, we'll take it under advisement. So, this moment's tremors mingle with others on the departure platform. Who knew it would be this silly and so dense? Nevertheless, we have a right to know, to have our impulses regulated and calibrated in the interests of farther and fainter reaction shots. Sure, you'll get your rights read to you, and sooner than you may have counted on. Let the monotonous group of listeners pump you for details. We'll provide backup and terminal ecstasy at the way stations. It couldn't have been any other way. You knew that. What's your name down there? Despite misgivings, the story clicks to a halt. As always, the credits surge. People rush to leave. The shiny cars of another era are coming to take us where we wish to be taken, lest we outstay our welcome and sink in the embrace of another mood. So my claim is that this is the maximum case for the proposition that one can't really paraphrase poetry <laughs> because the only thing you can empirically claim is happening in this poem is something having to do with trains. And movie. Yes. And these are not elements from which one could build any sort of narrative that this poem could be purported to be telling or any sort of poetic argument or poetic sequence that it could be purported to be engaging in those elements like the train and the cinematography aren't functioning 
to provide decodable or paraphrasable content. They're solely functioning to provide a network of related words that the poet can draw upon as he creates the mood that he's pursuing. Interesting. I see what you're saying, but I actually, the way I experienced this poem was slightly differently. I wasn't as focused on it at the level of the word. It seemed like the unit for this poem was a little bit longer. I don't know if it's a phrase or a sentence yet. That's part of what I was just trying to figure out while I was reading it. So I think it's the phrase because, for example, so this is the middle of the first stanza. Then if what lands on your plate stares angrily at you and the other guests can't wait to hear your reaction... That feels like one unit, why it's checkout time at the gazebo and no one will forget you too heartily as the next-to-last spectator always glimpsed on the premises. There's this similar buildup of sound quality at the end of that next unit of sound, um, or the end of that next unit, that phrase unit or something like that, feigning the concern for the next victim that marks you as the killer for sure. Killer for sure has a similar buildup as hear your reaction, which has a similar buildup as no one will forget you too heartily as the next to last spectator next to last spectator as another similar buildup of sound so there's these like weird units where there's a lot of consonants that kind of very quickly very disparate consonants that move along very quickly that then build to consonants that get tangled up in each other because there's so much compressed sound similar sounds in the same place does that make sense i think it does make a lot of sense The proposition that the unit of this poem, the basic unit of this poem, is these little clusters that build up to a climax via consonants, that I completely agree with you. Yeah. Where I want to push back is on how they function. I think that the key thing to zoom in on there is that these little clusters don't quite have a logical sequence. And in fact, they resist the attempt to impute a logical sequence. Mm -hmm. So I think the way they work is uh, they bring in related concepts and they play out differing ways in which they might be related to one another. So for example, the plate cluster, then if what lands on your plate stares angrily at you and the other guests, line break, can't wait to hear your reaction. That could be stares angrily at you and the other guests, and you immediately read it that way when you first are going through the poem. Mm -hmm. Then you have that subverted for you on the next line, and you read it as the other guests can't wait to hear your reaction. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you return to the poem after reading it for the first time, you don't experience either of those potential readings as revelatory. And you don't have a sudden, like, aesthetically pleasing shock of discovery when you shift from one of those relationships to another because it's a deeper or more revelatory relationship. It seems to solely be there to make you do that double take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I feel like John Ashbery often uses something kind of like um, what's called a garden path sentence. So my favorite dumb example of a garden path sentence is, "Time flies like an arrow; fruit flies like a banana." And like, there's a way in which that example that Isaac just gave works in that level where 
you don't realize that the sentence is branching off and it can be read in two different ways. And sometimes, not so much in this poem, but in other Ashbury poems, they're leaving me that like really jokey kind of like moment where you realize the way that you've been processing the sentence can't possibly be right. I think Asia's totally right with the sense that the phrase is the kind of like elementary particle here, where one of the really big effects is that in the middle of a given sentence, you suddenly feel like you're pivoting into a, a different uh, register. Ashbery tells a story about like, um, it's a Jean Cocteau movie about Orpheus where uh, Orpheus is a poet and he uh, writes his poems uh, by listening, like he receives them over, over radio waves. And there's something about John Ashbery's poetry that feels like someone is sitting at a radio and like the station is changing constantly, but they're somehow trying to like cobble together a poem out of like three different kinds of music. I think this becomes the frame. This is kind of the bookend to this episode with uh, Emily Dickinson because Emily Dickinson so unhinges your sense of like vocabulary and your sense of lexicon and like indexicality of words. And this poem by Ashbery so unhinges your sense of, I don't even want to say the no. sentence level. I don't know how to say it, but it's not like the pointing of a word. It's not the indexicality of a word. It's this like much larger unit of sense. And I can't like, I don't like have a way to articulate that. I I would say it's something like register or tone. Yeah. I think you're totally right that in, in Emily Dickinson poems, you become really aware that you're not sure what the word soul is like referring to at a really practical level. Or like you know what it's referring to, but you don't know what like what does that even mean, what is entailed in that. Where here there's not really that problem, but there is a like the kind of feeling of like a style of talking is being used in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. um, like my favorite example of this is I think one of his poems actually begins with like the line, hello shoppers, or like say doctor, that like sometimes it, it works through cliche, but even when it's not cliche, it sort of calls up the sense of like, this is a certain kind of talking and this kind of talking doesn't belong here or it's not normally used this way. So maybe in this poem, in the second stanza, third to last sentence of the second stanza let the monotonous group of listeners pump you for details we'll provide backup and terminal ecstasy at the way stations so pump you for details is almost bordering on cliche we'll provide backup um that belongs to a completely different kind of vocabulary of like uh you know we'll help you out but that doesn't you don't say that in the same conversation where you say like i'm going to pump you for details and terminal ecstasy at the way stations i don't even know that like that's just a collection of words that we don't we don't know we don't have a like like a place for that we, that's like from a completely different universe is that kind of what yeah. you're getting at totally i think terminal ecstasy at the way stations is not just something that we can't get to grips with it's something that is self-detonating it yeah. invites you to attempt to make it work and invites you to treat it as a machine when in fact it's a bomb <laughs> because there's a this is a pun in a way as well we'll provide terminal ecstasy a railway terminal is where yeah. a line ends yep and a terminal disease is one that will kill you these things are the uh, the end of a line but they're happening at a way station. So terminal ecstasy, those two words on their own, one is immediately ready to say ecstasy, which means standing outside oneself, transcending oneself, 
is terminal. It could be the ecstasy of death, or this could be a climactic ecstasy if we're going to erotic other instead of God, but it's still a very viable construct, but it's immediately followed by at the way stations. Way stations, by definition, cannot be terminal. And if you're providing terminal ecstasy at the way stations, that ecstasy cannot be terminal. It's part of a process that, by definition, is not ending. So it baits you with a very appealing pun and then completely pulls the rug out from under you as you attempt to run that pun mechanically. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Maud McInerney for teaching us the uh, etymology of ecstasis and ecstasy. A plus. Thanks, Maud. We love you. But yeah, this is one of, I think what's really amazing about this poem and what you're kind of, I like what you were saying, Isaac, about this kind of, the the bomb that like, it invites you to be in it and it also invites you to detonate it. I think he's kind of getting to that at the, in that last stanza. He's almost, I wouldn't, I'd never want to say that he's actually giving us the meta like way to read this poem, the kind of like meta commentary, but despite misgivings, the story clicks to a heart, a halt as, as always the credits surge, people rush to leave the shiny cars of another era are coming. We sink into the embrace of another mood. There's something about that, the way that like the, despite misgivings, the story clicks to a halt that, we know the story, like, the, we know the story's ending, but we have misgivings about it, which means we still kind of want to, you know, as always, return to it and re, like, invigorate whatever we're encountering that's kind of happening in this poem. Every poem, every line of this poem is aware that it can, it's going to end or that it's part of a sentence that is going to find its period and it clicks to that halt. And yet it forces you to kind of read that that phrase or that pattern that we've just encountered into the next line or into the next phrase that we're going to encounter there's a really this poem is very aware of the way that um something moves but also stops the way that a bomb like your example your like metaphor isaac of a bomb that invites you to kind of deconstruct it as it's also inviting you to detonate it there's this very funny like start and stop way that this poem kind of operates and i think that's integral to how these units that you've divided the poem into work, these sort of clusters or microcosms or microcosmoses that this poem operates on are all clustered around a particular lexicon or context. They're all related ideas that seem to have a certain logical through line to them. The credits rolling, the people rushing to leave, that puts us in a movie theater, but the cognitive effect that happens when we read that stanza is not closely associated with a movie theater per se. It's the fact that it is a set of related words and ideas that coheres that the poem can inhabit for the length of one of its microcosms or one of its notches on the radio dial that makes it viable. It's not anything specific to the domain that the kinship between those ideas is coming from. So one of the big things that I think we've been really invested in, I mean, the big, the big point that I think we kind of suggested at the beginning and that we keep returning to is this idea of uh, a poem being something in process 
And the problem with yeah. something being in process is that you can't, you can't capture it because it's, it's, you can't capture something that's still happening. Right. So, so ways that you talk about that is you can't paraphrase something or you can't say what a poem is about are some of the ways we've talked about this. But I think one of the major things that we've hit on in all three of these poems is the different processes that a poem can kind of marshal to make itself keep processing and keep moving. So one of the things that we've mentioned a couple of times is metaphor. Another thing I think that we've been getting at without actually saying is voicing. So that seems to be one of the major engines here in the Ashbury poem, but it's something that we also kind of touched on in the Bishop poem when we have that intrusion of the poet, the poet's voice, and that's like very different, uh, the kind of judgment of the description rather than the, the descriptions itself. But I think one of the things that maybe this is making me think about is that there's lots of different ways to encourage processing um, and advertise a pro a, something in process rather than something that is going to come to completion. I think one very good example of that from our first poem this evening is uh, delineating units of time in the way that Dickinson does with her dashes innately invites the reader to treat the poem as a process rather than as a crystallized result they can take away with them because delineating units of silence foregrounds the poem as almost a script for performance, almost as something that has to be performed to work, like the score for a piece of music. And when one experiences a poem in that way, it emphasizes the fact that the poem as a collection of symbols on a piece of paper is undetonated or not yet activated or realized. It has to be run to become what it truly is. Yeah. The, 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 the poem is a sort of inciting incident for events in the consciousness of the reader that will produce a separate phenomenon that's the poem plus the reader, the fully detonated or operated or unfurled poem is a super phenomenon that can only exist when the poem is interacting with a reader's consciousness. Yeah. What this makes me think of is uh, Wolfgang Eiser wrote about how the reader has a finite frame when they're making their way through a text. The reader can only be consciously experiencing so much of a text at a time and this frame moves along the lines of the poem that's yeah. another kind of delineation mm -hmm. yeah i mean one thing that occurs to me is we've been spending a lot of time thinking about the way that poems create durations and like you i, which I think totally follows what you're talking about isaac that like it gives you the feeling that you're um not only processing an idea but that you're spending time with a sensation and sometimes that's like a very, you know, directly sensible thing, like you're hearing noises or you're visualizing things. But in other cases, it's like you're sort of protracting the experience of being thrown off your center of balance 
which I feel like is what we're finding in the Ashbury poem, that like that feeling of seeing something where it has the naturalness of cinema, like everything that you're seeing just seems like totally patent, like, well, there it is. But your emotional investment in it or your feeling about how real it is or how, how seriously you can take it is constantly being sort of pulled out from underneath you is in some ways a really good demonstration of how you can have something that on a phrase by phrase basis is totally transparent and results in something that you can't actually paraphrase because what really mattered was the sensation of spending time with these things that don't seem to fit together. I think that notion of protracting the sensation of being knocked off balance is really getting to the heart of the matter. This is uh, Wolfgang Eiser again. He talks about how when a text is being operated by the reader, there's a tension between the polysemantic nature of the text and what he calls the illusion-making faculty of the reader, which is just the reader's ability to construct a coherent reading of the poem that will explain everything that's interesting or troubling about it. And these two forces are constantly in tension with one another. The Ashbury poem is making that tension the star of the show. That's why it's always teasing the reader with the prospect of a viable illusion being crafted, yet constantly pulling the rug out from under them to protract that state. Yeah, I mean, one way of thinking about it is that like there are narrative poems where there's not a lot of pressure put on that tension between the matter of the poem and the reader's capacity to imagine it. And in a sense, we're especially fascinated by poems that in different ways and for different reasons really kind of like play around with that tension between the, the, the matter being presented to you as a reader and your own process of trying to make it viable for thought or viable for feeling or worse, viable for thought and feeling. <laughs> Which I guess is exactly why we so... If that's like kind of, I don't know, if that's exactly what we're looking for, a poem that's like looking to engage your kind of awareness of your processing of a poem, Mm -hmm. that makes sense why these are poems that we so enjoy reading together. And that kind of highlights the social quality of these poems, right? If, If this is a poem that reaches out and asks you to take a look at your processing, what better way to do that than to watch someone else processing the poem? So not only is it just like your awareness of your processing, you get, when we're doing this, when we're doing our, like, when we're doing like a poetry discussion, I get to watch you two process the poem too, which is kind of what we were talking about in the Dickinson poem, but seems to be kind of a larger thing that we're kind of gesturing at here. Totally. Like, I in general just enjoy talking about, like, things with other people at absurd lengths and like it's like really I can't imagine what my life would be like if I couldn't have really long conversations about you know the evolution of the sitcom form or like the nature of of, like hashtags as like a semiotic structure or like you know my my anger at the weather you know what would I do but I feel like you know, um, there's a there's a Wallace Stevens line that Isaac really likes quoting, which I'm going to mess up, but it's something like, the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. That's delightful when you're on your own, but as like I, I think you captured really well, it's even more 
fascinating and enjoyable when you're doing it with other people where you get to like watch other people sort of operate in that space of like not quite getting it and bringing all of their resources to bear on the task of enjoying everything the poem has to offer even if it's a poem that's not as you know baffling and obscure as like the ashbury still that kind of like you know discerning in every aspect of it something that's sort of like bizarre and enchanting you know is really it um it just makes you like someone more (laughs) (laughs) so with that with that idea of liking each other and liking someone more i think that's it guys i i'm gonna let sean have that one (laughs) we've started devolving so if you have a family to go back to go back to them (laughs) bye Yeah, I, I think that was that was a pretty good episode. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be a fair amount of editing. There's a lot but... of editing to do in this one. This one's a messy one. But we're we're all sleepy kins. That's the problem. Yeah. I, I, I started drinking in her garden at 4 p.m. today. <laughs> yeah. On my way to the hotel, I tried today. to buy some water to sober up, and <laughs> the guy in the little the little booth on uh, on Seventh uh, Avenue said water is the most important thing in life but though i thought he was asking what is the most important thing in life oh and i said it's to find a pursuit that's meaningful enough that it renders the frustrations of existence bearable i'm putting that on my dating profile that's what i want from a sexual partner I, I believe you mean an erotic other. An erotic <laughs> other, yes. Right. That's the politically correct term. An erotic other. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not that. I That's don't know what's more like... clinical, an erotic other or a sexual partner. I don't know what's worse. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's not about being clinical. The problem with erotic other is there's this whiplash between the first and the second word. Right. Where, like, erotic still feels like this sort of, like, french and sultry kind of way of putting it and then other feels like french in in like the opposite way french in the opposite way i love it i'm I'm right that's the problem you know yeah it's like at first it's all like oh this is like you know like brigitte bardot oh it's it's like so sexy and then like the second it's like lacan has suddenly reared his ugly mug (laughs) ruined everything uh, uh, Elizabeth Cohen Shearer wrote to me and Noel. She sent us an article that she put up mm-hmm. and oh. uh, said, This might be of interest to Zizek Bros. Oh my and God. Noel and I didn't even know that was what we were until someone called us that. Oh um, my God. Was just like, yes, I submit to your name. Oh, and I wrote, I wrote Noel a, a response to that. David Lynch's Blue Velvet, really, in my view, the ultimate work of pervert art, says that we should be stoked to get beers with our bros. And okay, 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 yes, I'm stoked to get beers with my bros, and so on and so on and so on. But I propose that from a Lacanian perspective, it's more complicated. We should put that beer in cups and play Pong, yo. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that, that, that was very well done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a Zizek impression. It is not as good as that. No. I wasn't doing enough of the nose rubbing. That's no, the key. Like, my God, my God, pure ideology.